it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. After connecting with the adoption community over a decade ago, I recognized the added value adoptees bring to a conversation about adoption. You, the listening audience, will have the opportunity through episodes in this podcast to learn, dissect, and grapple with some of the issues involving those of us separated from our biological family. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? I'm happy to introduce my next guest, who found me through a fellow adoptee, Sarah Elizabeth Greer. A big shout out to Sarah for connecting me to Constance Nicole Ryerson affectionately called Connie. She has at least two outstanding creative endeavors that she covers in part during this recording, one of which is a new film titled Color of Autumn, inspired by a true story. In 1966 Chicago, a sheltered black eight-year-old is blindsided by cruel and casual racism while on the playground with white children. I've had an opportunity to watch the trailer, and I encourage you to click on its link in the show notes after listening to this conversation. Connie grew up on the south side of Chicago. I can relate to that. During this episode, she shares a part of her relinquishment and kinship adoption journey. I'm excited about having Connie on my show because we don't often get to hear from adoptees who were raised by an extended biological family member. It comes with its complexities for sure, and Connie explains how that has affected her. If you're a regular listener and or appreciate hearing from Dr. Joyce McGuire Pavo, then on an episode from Season 8, Episode 131, you heard Dr. Pavo elaborate on how difficult kinship adoptions can be for the adoptee and other family members. Connie and I created the awesome opportunity to meet in person, and we did that on Saturday, October 21st. The weather was perfect for an autumn day in the Windy City. We walked along the beautiful Lake Michigan on the north side of Chicago. She and I engaged in insightful, interesting, and fun conversation for nearly two hours. We talked about her childhood and living with her grandmother before moving to Chicago as a little person and some of the ups and downs of navigating relationships with biological family. Connie was born into a legacy of secrets and has fought to heal her heart and be an agent of truth, change, and art for children, grandchildren, and community. Throughout her employment history, human services have been at the core. Some of the industries she's worked in include higher education, financial services, corporate health care, and media management. Allow me to introduce you to someone who believes that the totality of her life has prepared her for the work she's doing now. I couldn't agree more. 
Connie fully intends to create material regarding finding the bliss in life. She is a follower of Joseph Campbell, who wrote The Hero's Journey, and would be more so The Shero's Journey, specifically directed to black women. She is now a working writer and content creator focused on her autobiographical novel, The House on Union Street. Constance, I have been looking forward to this conversation with you, and not just because we're both from Chicago, the South Side, uh, certainly we have that in common, but because you, you've got so many great things going on. You have a film, Color of Autumn, that I was able to see the trailer of, and it just looks like it's so interesting about hate speech. Yeah, let me start by asking you, how are you doing in Chicago? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing well, and, and I'm so happy to be here with you, Jennifer. I can honestly say I feel like I finally found my tribe. Mm, that's a good feeling, isn't it? Mm. I think because you said you're going to read something today for yeah. the audience, maybe we'll start there. Okay, wonderful. Okay, here we go. Chapter 8. Dottie meets Maggie where she is. Maggie rarely came around when Dottie was growing up. Dottie has known Maggie as her birth mother since the year she turned eight. Maggie attended the birthday party, dressed immaculately as always. She discreetly hands a envelope to Odessa. It's for Dottie. During the festivities of party hats, noisemakers, music, and games, Odessa hands Dottie the envelope to open. It's a beautiful card, brightly decorated with butterflies, glitter, and a big shiny number eight. There's a folded $10 bill tucked inside. Odessa points to Maggie sitting across the room on the couch. Now, go over there. Say, thank you, mother. Dottie obediently crosses the room, weaving through her young party guests. As she approaches, Maggie takes a quick sip from her glass. Not feeling very sure of herself, Dottie softly speaks. Thank you, mother. <coughs> mother? I'm not your mother. Don't you ever call me that again. Pointing to Odessa, who is busy lighting the candles on the cake. She is your mother. Time to sing happy birthday. Come on, Dottie, before the candles burn out. Rebuffed and heartbroken. Dottie never got over the rejection, but through the years, she still craved whatever acknowledgement she could get from her birth mother. Maggie has changed 
since that time. She's had to fight and finally make peace with the many demons that raged inside of her for so long. Dottie wants to know all there is to know about her, the good and the bad. Maybe she can finally understand why she has never fit in with this family. They share the same blood. What made her different and so unwanted? Wow, that was powerful. So intense. Yeah. yeah. And that's from your upcoming memoir. Yeah. Yes, it's autobiographical. But, you know, of course, I've changed the names. And, you know, anyone that knows me and reads the novel, they'll know who everyone is. Mm. You know, kind of thing. It's important for me to give back to my community and my, my brand new community, which are adoptees. I had no idea that, you know, there was so much work wonderful work being done you know and I'm just so happy to be connected and I'm going to figure out where I can fit in and where I can help most yes well congratulations on thank you yes on writing your story and I agree that your contribution is so needed it is so important for you to share your story mm -hmm. yes and I, I want to congratulate you on the film. I was hoping we could talk about that when, whenever you're yes. ready. Yes. And, and really wherever you want to start and however much you want to share about okay. your relinquishment and adoption. Sure. Okay. Well, it's always best to try to start from the beginning. So I just want to say that I believe that everyone has a story worth telling. Some of us can openly share to help others, you know, like myself, but it does require some heavy lifting, some, some work, some intense work where we really have to look in the mirror and see who we actually are and make peace with what, you know, the destruction of whatever caused our trauma in our lives. There's studies that show that trauma can begin at inception. So a little bit about my family. They were trying to get away from the Jim Crow South in the 1940s. So some of my blood relatives migrated to Chicago in the 1940s. They were looking forward to starting a new life, you know, they called Chicago the promised land back then. We're going up south. And at the time of my birth, women really didn't have, Black women specifically, didn't have many tangible resources, right? Like good health care, counseling, those kind of resources. I was a kinship adoption which allowed me to stay with the members of my original family. Because there were multiple traumas handed down through the generations of my family, by the time I was born, my caregivers, they were ill-equipped to love and nurture me. My trauma 
began with inception. I was a result of an unwanted pregnancy. So the family's head of the family, my, my grandmother, she came to the rescue. She took me at the age of two with all of my belongings, my little whatever I had, and she relocated me to Mobile, Alabama. And I tell you, from the age of two until seven, that was the best, best part of my childhood. She had a plum tree in the backyard that I used to spend a lot of time just sitting and playing and, you know, looking up at the leaves and the sky and the trees. Fast forward a little bit, when I was seven, the family up north decided, oh, well, you know, she's too old. Let's relocate her up here along with this child because they were figuring out what they were going to do with me, basically, right? There was an adoption that took place. It was my, my great aunt who was daughter to my grandmother. So we were going to move into their house. And that family, it was all about assimilating from the South, which my great aunt was ashamed of. She didn't want any connection really with that. And she was, you know, part of the new middle class in Chicago. So there was a quick stop in Bronzeville. And then we moved to um, a neighborhood called Auburn Gresham, where they bought a brand new little bungalow house. I became their child and they were childless themselves, you know, unable to have children, but they felt like I was the perfect addition to the type of family that they wanted to show to the world, to the community, to their circle of friends. Now, this is your paternal aunt, correct? That is correct. Okay. Now, the, the trouble that occurred over the years were these secrets about my origin and my mother and those kinds of things. And it was really interesting because no one bothered to really sit down and explain anything to me. And that instance of the, the party, I had seen my birth mother around, you know, occasionally, but I, I didn't really connect with her that she was actually my mother and the confusion that that caused. And this family also suffered from alcoholism and abuse of drugs and things of that nature. But they were trying to fill a hole that was unfillable because of their own traumas. So there is a little quote that I came up with. I have lived most of my life in quiet desperation, wanting and wishing to belong. Wow. That's a pretty um, deep quote. It resonates with me because I believe mm -hmm. that belonging is most important. It's, it's definitely better for me than trying to fit in. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. And being an only child, it's already a lonely kind of existence when everyone else in the household, they're adults and you're the child. So the great thing that I enjoyed 
in my childhood was escaping, you know, in between the pages of different books. And back then they didn't call us nerds. They called us bookworms, I think. <laughs> right. Yeah, I remember <laughs> so, that. Yeah. So the uh, the library was a, a sacred place for me. That was a place where I could go, you know, not be under the observation of my adopted mother, who was very strict. Back then, they still had the bookmobile that would come and pull up by your elementary school. Mm, I remember, yeah. <laughs> and instead of going to lunch, I went to the bookmobile. So many times I would have a stack of books that it was impossible for me to carry them all. So I would have <laughs> to put back and hope no one else took them. But that is that's such a wonderful memory for me. And also, you know, the neighborhood church was also a sanctuary. And the great thing about me living in this difficult situation in Chicago, my grandmother was there. And she was the one that I called mama because she was the only mama that I knew. Mm. So, of course, that would create some friction and Mama has a very pivotal role in the color of autumn because she is the product of the civil rights movement. She sung a cappella all over the South, raising money for Martin Luther King, those kinds of things. So she wasn't willing to give up the past. And mm -hmm. there's actually a scene in the short film where the adopted mother is saying, Lord, please, no civil rights talk tonight while she's uh, expecting the guests to arrive. The thing with our community, I believe, is we have to look for those common threads. And for us to really heal from this, again, it, it is going to take some work. So that's where I wanted to get to my three points that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, one of the best teaching tools that I was given or advice as a writer, write about what you know. And I've already done all the heavy lifting, all the work to get to where I am. Because I was, what do they call it, the, the good daughter syndrome, I could never please my adopted mother. I went far in, in higher ed with all these degrees. And then one day I had to stop and say, wait a minute, who am I doing this for? Mm. I knew I needed help. I uh, looked for a therapist and I noticed that every instance, the therapist would look at me, what was on the outside. Yes, I was well-dressed, well put together, able to articulate, and they saw that as success. And they would tell me, oh, you're doing fine. But I was dying inside. Right. But yeah, adoptees, we can present very well. Absolutely. Because, <laughs> I mean, we don't want to draw attention to ourselves. We want to look like we are part of the social fabric, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't like eyes on us too much. Yeah. We want to look like we belong, right? <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. 
over time, you know, I ended up becoming a mom and getting married and, you know, having difficulty in relationships because I always felt insecure. And I later found out that it was because of how I was abandoned. You know, that the fact that I had knowledge that my mother did not want me. Yeah. So hard pill to swallow, right? It is really hard. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, I got with a therapist and my advice, and this, this has to do with the re- reconciliation part of the healing. Once you're able to acknowledge that it was not your fault what happened to you, right? People always talk about forgiveness and, oh, you got to get past it and all these kinds of things. No, sit with your disappointment and try to make sense of it as best as you can. And if you don't have people in your life who can give you guidance, then look for someone that looks like you, maybe thinks like you, and get the professional help that you need. Yeah. And second point is acceptance. Those in, that were entrusted to nurture and love you failed. And they failed because they were actually ill-equipped during that critical time. And that's why I became the master caregiver as a child. Because mm. I make sure all the adults were okay so that I could feel safe. No child should be burdened with that. And that has a lot to do with the work that I'm doing right now. You know, like the color of autumn is about this character, Dottie, and how she experiences the N-word on a playground with white children. It was, a, you know, just so foreign to her. Like, what does she do with that? And honestly, the problems that we have in our society right now it's going to take some collective healing. Once upon a time, you know, you could say, oh, it's, it's, it's a problem in the Black community. It's, um, you know, economics. It's this, it's that. It's so many parts to this that the healing has to be collective. So even in the film, you know, I often impress upon my producers, you know, because they were like, well, this is a Black story. And we were so fortunate to have people of color behind the scenes, you know, from our director to the producers, to the actors. I mean, it was, it was such a wonderful experience to reach out to these people and be able to compensate them for their important work. But it's not just about dying. Think about the children who were bending to peer pressure which when you see the film, you will see that very broadly because it was beautiful until those white children came to that playground and changed everything. Mm. I wanted to go back just for a moment to number one, acknowledgement. Would you say that that's similar to pausing and processing? Well, on our journey of discovery, we are pausing and processing. So basically the acknowledgement part, it it has more to do with, well, wow, that was kind of messed up. (laughs) You know what I mean? This is, this is a selfish process. 
And it's where you just look at the situation and we know to be human is not perfection. None of us are. And we can't walk into the shoes of the people that traumatized us, mistreated us. And you have to, on some level, try to let that go and be okay with it. And that's when you get to the point of acceptance. So it's like, okay, you've done all this research, you've um, connected with all these people, now what? I am a firm believer, and I was forced to do this with the pandemic. And that's when I started getting all this work done because, you know, I wasn't able to continue the career that I was in. So I was like, well, what do I do now? And fortunately, I was like, well, I guess my life is over. I, I had already hit 60. The dreams that were deferred, I, I was never able to complete a lot of the things that I wanted to do in my life. And I figured, well, maybe I'll just write a memoir and leave something behind for my daughters. But I was fortunate to meet someone who saw something in me that I could not see at that time. And who was that? Actually, her name is Rebecca Bloom. And she's the lady that I'm going to introduce your audience to as a medical resource because she's working on a book and she has a website. Because of her advocacy experience in human resources and that whole medical aspect, she's a strong advocate of women and their care, especially in the area of cancer. So there's no resource out there that helps you navigate the medical system. She was actually a, a writing coach, a memoir artist, because when we were dealing with the pandemic, the restrictions kicked in. And I quickly understood that I can't control what's going on outside of my apartment, but I can control what's inside. And she helped me get on that path. I can't tell you how amazing. I mean, she is just such a wonderful advocate. I can't say enough about her, but I know this is not about her. So let me go. <laughs> yeah, ahead we'll and... we'll put a link in the yeah. show, show notes sure. about yeah. her. Yeah. So you got acknowledgement, you've yep. got acceptance, and the third is reconciliation. Yeah. That's looking at the de debris that is around you that was your life your your family the hurts and the bumps and the bruises and the steady getting up and starting again you have to reconcile that because now that you know and especially someone like myself who was a caregiver in every arena that i worked in because of that hard wiring that happened to me as a child. You have to pull it in and start the self-healing. You can never reclaim that intimate or what should have been an intimate time between you and your birth mother. You, you can't get that back. What you have left is, okay, so I can control how I respond to all of this. Let me build my sacred space. I did some research on that. And again, that came from my own experience during the pandemic, trying to get a handle on myself. And it talks about, you know, not so much on a religious type of 
aspect, but it's more spiritual. It's more sacred is a thing of respect. Some people, they build altars or you could do it in a windowsill, put all your little favorite things there, your touchstones, whatever that is. And that is your place where you can meditate. Or if you're an artist who likes to draw or paint or, you know, get back to that part of your childhood that you had to give up, you know, because you had to deal with whatever was going on in your life. So it's all about determining who can stay in your life. And this can be difficult, but if they are causing you harm, they have to go. You can love them at a distance. You can love them because of the idea of them. I treasure the fact that my mother allowed me to be born, but I, I can't be in her life, unfortunately. It's gonna have to be about me because as an adoptee, and especially if you are a caregiver, when my therapist told me, oh, you know, you're hypervigilant. <laughs> and at the time, I was working in corporate healthcare, uh, responsible for 200 people. And I took that as, oh, that's a compliment. No, that's, that was not a compliment to have to be so concerned about everybody else and not giving that love back to yourself. Right. So this process is about finding your authentic self. I call it an awakened path because we're all on a journey, right? Right. But yeah, yeah when we become awakened, when, when we know like, oh, okay, my life depends on this. Discovering my authentic self, I realize, oh my goodness, I have so much work to do. And they call this finding your bliss, following your talent. What is it that you would do if you could afford it, that you would do for free? It's not about earning lot of uh, lots of money okay because i mean you can enjoy after you've earned the money there are things that you can do but you know a lot of times people don't enjoy chasing the money so you just have to build up the quality of your your life because you only got one one shot at this and that's what i believe that's pretty good i'm glad you shared all of that and <laughs> Speaking of finding like your authentic yeah. self, I want to just give a shout out to Sarah Greer because oh. she's how you found me <laughs> and oh I goodness. deeply appreciate her oh yeah, letting you know how to reach yes. me. So yeah, I'm really, yes. I just wanted to say thank you, Sarah Greer. <laughs> thank you, Sarah Greer. She is such a beautiful spirit. Yes, yeah. I've known her for a while now. We met at, at an adoption constellation conference many years ago. I see her on Facebook from time to time now. So I'm glad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad yes. she connected us. And and oh. one of the things that really caught my attention about your journey is that it is a kinship adoption. And I have many listeners who want to know more about that. In fact, yeah. In fact, I had a guest 
Dear Dr. Joyce McGuire Pavel, who during our conversation happened to be working with a family, kinship adoption Mm -hmm. family, and she shared, like it just came out of nowhere, it was beautiful during our recording, Mm -hmm. um, how difficult it can be. And so I... I would like if you if you don't mind just to share mm-hmm. with my audience what makes it so difficult in yeah. your opinion. Okay, so this this thread feeds back to my advocacy of children, especially young children. And my my desire is to get adults to pay attention when they are going through whatever it is that they're going through, please look around in the space and see who's there and think about how they would be impacted by the, the statements that you're making. I have a little cousin, she was, she was like a sister to me. She was the child that was always in the room and she heard way more than she should have heard, right? And for her to be burdened with that knowledge. And also, it's like five-year difference between our ages. But when I was um, under threat of being physically abused, she took her little five-year-old body and jumped between me and the abuse and would cry and scream to have them to leave me alone. Mm. When I realized that I was somewhat healed, it's really contextual, right? Because the therapy I went into, it was the center of contextual change here in Chicago. You can't erase the pain, the hurt. You know, we, we just keep putting scabs on it. And sometimes when we're triggered, the scab is ripped off. And for me, when I am triggered, I, I stop breathing. And I didn't realize that for a very, very long time, that I would literally stop breathing. I would be in the sessions with my therapist and, you know, telling her about some instance in my childhood, and she would have to stop me and tell me to breathe. Wow. So... The kinship situation has to do with secrets and all the, the different abuses, dysfunction, toxicity. That, that's hard for a child to understand. All I knew was that I'm not wanted here. I want to be rescued. The show Cinderella that used to come on every year. This was the white version that had Leslie Ann Warren and all these other actors. It would come on every year, and I was allowed to watch it. And I remember there was one year that I watched it, and when I went to bed, and this was, you know, the the abuse was heightened, and I just started crying in, in, in my bed. I cried. I cried so hard I didn't care who heard me. And my adopted mother came to the door and said, what's wrong with you? And I said, I want to be Cinderella. Girl, take your butt to sleep. Shut up. And then, you know, I could hear her teasing me. So I, 
I wasn't saying that I wanted a man to come and rescue me. I just wanted to be rescued from the horrible situation that I was in. Right. Oh, my goodness. That's, that's heartbreaking. I know a few adoptees who are in kinship adoptions. And mm. up until recently, I thought, wow, they got to stay with their tribe, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty much everything that I read was saying, you know, if a mm-hmm. child has to be removed from their parents or mm-hmm. not able to stay with them, at least with a kinship adoption, they are with their tribe mm-hmm. and, and people yeah. that yeah are familiar to them. But when yeah. I hear you share how difficult your experience yeah. was, and then Dr. Pavel sharing how yeah. difficult kinship adoptions are, I just had to pause. The way she explained it, Dr. Pavel mm-hmm. explained it, is mm-hmm. everybody has history about everybody, and oftentimes <laughs> that is shared. That's it. Yeah, and it's not shared in a loving way, and there's a lot of resentment going on. And I thought, oh, my goodness, like, that Mm -hmm. is hard. It is hard. And you know what? From those experiences, I have a, a disorder where I disassociate. Like I talked about the quiet desperation. Children are to be seen, not heard. You know, I was, you know, like a performing circus pony. You know, I knew all the utensils to use properly, set a table, clean a house, present myself, speak, all of those things. But there was no love. Oh my gosh, I had closet full of shoes and clothes and I would have traded all of that just to get a good morning from my adopted mother a hug from her. But instead, she was that, like the evil stepmother. You know, well, go do your chores. You can't do this. You can't do that. I cover a lot of this in the novel because it's it's an educational tool. All of us, we teach. And we teach by the life that we live and the things that we do. This manuscript is a deliberate assessment of this family. It begins with the birth of my grandmother, which was just before the 1900s. And it speaks about what's going on historically in society. So I I have great hopes for this. I've done the research. I wish I had something to turn to, to read as a child, as a teen, that gave me comfort that I was not alone. I was forced into silence because I thought it was only me. And in that kinship environment, I was considered rebellious and ungrateful and you don't know how good you have it and, you know, all that kind of communication. And it's so funny, I want to just add this last thing, which is very poignant. My adopted mother got to the point where I could not look her in her eye. I had to lower my eyes. And it wasn't that I hated her. I just didn't understand. But she felt threatened. Mm. (laughs) This is your grandmother on your father's side, your biological father's side. 
This is her daughter? Yes. So your birth father and your adoptive mother are siblings? Yes. How is your relationship now with your adoptive mother? She's passed. She passed on some years ago. My adoptive father, you know, I want to say he was also a victim like I was under her tyranny. Mm. But he was such a sweetheart. I celebrate him in this short film. You know, there's a scene in the film where, you know, Dottie goes out to the garage where, you know, that's where his his workshop is and where he does all his tinkering and everything. A song comes on the radio and Dottie starts dancing and he grabs his camera. You know, my adoptive father was always taking photos with his Kodak camera. And he starts taking pictures, but then he stops and goes to dance with Dottie. And the garage was the sacred space where they got to spend their quality time together. So the film is out now, right? Yes. Is there anything else you wanted to say about The Color of Autumn? Yes, certainly. So what we hope, my team, it's not even a hope now. The train has already left the station, so to speak. But this short film, we are wrapping a curriculum around it to get it in the classroom. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yes. And we want to make sure it's accessible, you know, because kids don't like being lectured to. It needs to be something interactive and meaningful. So it's going to be more workshopping. Someone like myself would be on the monitor, you know, after the film has been shown. Another educator, possibly, I would have a partner with me where we would interact with the group. So it doesn't have to be just in a classroom. It could be community center, churches, any places where they gather young people together. And again, this hate speech, although it's a story about a Black girl, it's really a universal theme. And there's that common thread that we all share. And we have this saying that we say about the film. We say that it's our hope to open hearts and minds. They've tried to bury the N-word. Some people feel like, well, it's mine and I'm going to claim it. If it's hurting, it's wrong. Well, I look forward to seeing the film. I'm excited about the book. You've written, it's complete now, right? Well, we're in the final edits. We expect it to publish early next year. And the film itself, it is going through the film festival submission phase, which is required for our filmmakers, because, of course, they want to show off our work. I hope to have some exciting news to share with you about Chicago soon. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I'm so happy Mm -hmm. So happy for you. And please let me know how I can support you in what you're doing. And I look forward to meeting you in person 
when oh, I'm in yes. Chicago. Like we we talked about walking by Lake Michigan. That should be yes, a joy. To... Oh my gosh, you you know you give me life, honey. I'm telling you. I'm so glad our paths crossed, and I guess as we wrap things up, um, mm-hmm. and I know I'll have you back. You know when mm-hmm. your book is published and mm-hmm. and all of that. I look forward to that too. Yes. And so as we wrap up, what would you say has been the most rewarding and or challenging thing about being better connected to the adoption community? Oh, it's a whole new world. <laughs> a world that I didn't realize existed. I have experienced already just the feeling of being welcomed, embraced, No one caring about my story. It's more about who I am as a person. I've learned some things already by connecting, you know, with my my sister women on the Zoom. I'm so hopeful. I am hopeful and grateful. And I just know this is only going to strengthen me as an advocate for adoptees and, and foster children. Because I believe children are such a valuable resource and they need to be protected and nurtured. That's well said. I agree. I love that word, hopeful. Being connected to the community does give me a lot of hope. My meeting with Patrice last night, she's the one that talked about being hopeful Mm. and sitting in the grace Nice. Yeah. She's so wise. She's amazing. (laughs) Well, is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to share? I can't think of it this time around, but I'm sure I'll have more. (laughs) Yeah, we'll definitely be staying connected and fellowshipping real soon, as a matter of fact. I I love that word fellowshipping. My grandmother used to always talk about fellowshipping. All of you are so beautiful. I I just love you. Oh, that's so kind. We love you too. Yeah. And and I believe it was Patrice who said, this is a place where you can just be. Mm. And I have always, I've been saying that since my healing journey, I just want to be, you know, I don't want to be this, that, or the other, just, just be. And isn't it interesting that belong Mm. starts with be. Mm. Right? (laughs) Yes. Oh, this has been a wonderful conversation. And thank you so much for taking the time out to have it with me. Of course. I will always make time because this is important. This is important work that we're doing. Each time I fellowship with Connie, I get inspired to keep making contributions to the adoptee community. She encourages me to no end and others that our work may never be done so long as there are people affected by the darkness of adoption. I appreciated her candidness about the hardships of being a kinship adoptee to make us all aware of its reality. Connie seeing her birth mother as a little person caused confusion because she didn't really know who she was. Though she was allowed to stay with members of her original family, There were multiple traumas handed down to her 
that she had to acknowledge, accept, and reconcile. Connie's advice is to acknowledge what has happened and make sense of it as best you can. Acceptance is the next step. She further states that no one has to carry the burden of what ill-equipped caregivers passed on to those they were entrusted to care for. And lastly, reconciliation of the hurts, bumps, bruises, and the starting over again is a necessary part of the process. An awakened path is finding your bliss. A shout out to Rebecca Bloom for showing Connie something inside of her that she couldn't at the time see for herself. Often it is through the beautiful connections and ties we make with others during our life's adventure that help us to realize our strengths and talents. I sense that the seed was planted by Connie's grandmother to know her worth, and some of her best childhood memories come from that nurturing experience. Thank you, Connie, for having this conversation with me. I feel your passion to live life to the fullest. When we lean into that, it is one of the best gifts we give to ourselves and others. I look forward to reading your upcoming novel next year because you have done the research to provide the reader with true insight of your lived experience as a kinship adoptee. I'm in agreement with you that your film, Color of Autumn, being presented at film festivals right now will open hearts and minds. You once told me that I give you life, so as we continue to get to know each other better, I trust that you will continue to do the exact same thing for me. If you're an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, visit jenniferdianegolston.com. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow and or give, hopefully, a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I trust you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is still the very best way for the show to grow. Thank you for being here.